All right then. We are studying church history, and we're in this modern age. We've been working our way through. And yes, I know people are trickling in, so they'll trickle when they trickle. But uh, we've been working our way through the centuries, and we're in the 20th century now. And we're talking about stuff that has happened right after World War II, and how that affects even where we're sitting right now in our evangelical church today. But, if you'll remember, this is a time right in the late 40s where we're talking about discovery and division. All sorts of people figuring that if they can just, if they can just separate themselves from the stuff that's chafing, that everything will be cool. If they can just divvy things up so that everybody has their own piece of the pie, nobody will have any more problems. Because that works, right? If you can just divide up the pie so that everybody has a piece of the pie, nobody's upset anymore. So, 1948. Korea, divided between North and South, right? That happened in 1948. I'm amazed, before I go any further, I'm amazed at how many people don't know where Korea is. I mean, we're, we're familiar, like, it's in Asia, but we don't know. We, it's on the north side of China, over here. It's parallel to Japan. And I say that because people will watch, like, old episodes of MASH, and they'll see snow on the ground, and they'll see guys dressed in, you know, like, parkas and stuff and being cold, and they'll freak out because they'll say, I thought Korea was all, like, hot and jungly. I know I'm not even going to ask you if you're one of the people that tend to think that Korea is hot and jungly. Usually the people who have a problem with that are confusing Korea with Vietnam, which is way down there. And people think, oh, it's all Asia. Asia's big. So <laughs> Korea is not Vietnam. You can see why they're totally different. I mean, Korea is parallel to Japan that has, like, snowy Mount Fuji and stuff. And, and, uh, and Vietnam is parallel to the Philippines and Rangoon and stuff. So different kinds of climates. Anyway, okay, anyway, um, during the occupation of Korea by Japan in World War II, Native Koreans weren't allowed to use Native Korean to speak, to write, to, to even speak their own names in Korean. They, the entire language was, uh, not just the language, the whole culture. They weren't supposed to eat Korean food. They weren't supposed to dress in Korean dress. They, everything that they did, they were supposed to use the Japanese equivalent because what the Japanese were consciously trying to do was destroy Korea. Not destroy Korea, the country, destroy Korea, the concept. There is no Korea anymore. You're just Western Japan. So you can understand why the Koreans, even to this day, still don't tend to like the Japanese. We, we knew, we knew a, a, a Korean, um, I've mentioned this before, but we knew a Korean missionary, a guy from Korea, who had a burden to reach Japan. So he was at, Tr at Trinity when we were there, and he was studying so he could be a missionary to Japan, which is why his loving Christian family disowned him and refused to talk to him. Because they didn't want Japan saved. Let them burn. We, we hate them. Anyway, you can understand why in August of 45, when the, when the Russians or the Soviet Union invaded Korea from the north, most Koreans were very excited. The idea of getting rid of Japan, they were very happy. You can understand that, right? Soviet Union, yay! With support from the Chinese communists, and everybody goes, yay! North Korea saved! Actually, a lot of Americans were actually happy about that. They're like, yay, get rid of this. It's helpful to understand that the Soviet Union declared war against Japan um, only after they were sure that all the Allies were going to win. Soviet Union, well, Russia, had fought Japan in several wars over the last century. There are multiple Russian-Japanese wars. 
And so they're like, yeah, we're not getting into that again unless we absolutely know we're going to win. So they declared war on Japan on August 9th. And the world celebrated VJ Day, victory over Japan, on August 15th. <laughs> they declared war on Japan less than a week before the end of the war. And then they were perfectly happy to divvy up everything as being part of the, the winning side. That was kind of what they did in Europe. That's definitely what they did in, in, uh, with Japan. Again, the rest of the Allies are like, really? Really? You know, you're, you're going to sit here with us and say, I think we all get equal shares. What was the fact that we were all fighting them? Anyway, after the war, Korea found itself occupied by the USSR in the north and the USA in the south, as we had gotten rid of the Japanese. And though they appreciated getting rid of the Japanese, they weren't excited about having completely different people occupying them. They're like, we're kind of done with that. We're not really happy about being occupied anymore. So, the Soviets withdrew in 1948, sort of. We withdrew in 1949, sort of. And we left a provisional government there. Everything's fine. Korea is saved. Right? It's never that simple. It's never that simple. The provisional government, which was normally backed by the United States, we didn't actually have troops there or anything, but we, we helped put the government in place, and we're like, we, we wish you well. Um, they were not a very nice group of people. They brutally put down strikes and labor unions and things and rebellions led by Korean workers, the Korean workers who were specifically backed by the USSR. So the, so the Soviet Union backed up and said, no, we're no longer part of this, but we're totally fomenting rebellion there. And we, we're, we want to support the workers who are pushing for communism. In 1948, the South declared itself an independent state. Like, we are our own country. We're controlling all that. So the North said, all right, fine, we'll do that. The North became officially the communist state. The South officially the democratic state, though, wasn't necessarily very nice at the time. The USSR and all the pro-communist forces in China supported North Korea. But the United States remained neutral. Why? Soviet Union and then specifically Communist China sent troops into North Korea. The United States said, good luck, guys. Why? Yeah, I mean, we just got out of a war, right? I mean, it's not even three years since our war was over. We're not going to go over there. Let the Koreans handle Korea. It's an internal conflict, right? Okay. It worked out great, didn't it? Sure it did. Yeah. All right. In that same year, for that same thing, <clears throat> Stalin blockaded Berlin. If you remember, after World War II, Germany has been divided up by the people who won, uh, with each major power taking a chunk. I mean, France has a chunk, America has a chunk, England has a chunk, uh, Soviet Union has a chunk, Poland has a chunk, everybody's got their own chunk of Germany. 1947, the British and American zones clumped together to become the Bi-Zone. They even called it Bi-Zone as if it were its own little country. And they're trying to move the Germans toward independence. But in the East, the USSR and Poland, they're like, you, no, 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 no. We have no interest in them necessarily moving toward any kind of independence. Now, you'll notice that Berlin falls squarely in the Soviet zone, right? So what do you do with that? Even though it's still in the Soviet zone, it's also divided up between the major powers. Berlin has its own zones of occupation. So you had to have passes to move through zones, etc. Because they didn't want Berlin to be one whole um, isolated, insulated uh, 
form our capital. They didn't think that that would be particularly wise. Now, at that time, the Reichsmark, which was the, the currency that had been used under Hitler, the Reichsmark had become completely deflated. It, just, it, was, it was worth nothing at, at the time, in large part because the Soviet Union printed so many of them. And they printed so many of them because they were trying to destroy the economy. They wanted German economy to go belly up. That was part of the way of controlling the German people. They had to be completely dependent on the USSR as a result of that. So they're consciously trying to destroy the economy. But the other allies said, but the whole reason we're occupying this is to help them get back on their feet. And so they developed a completely different currency, the Deutsche Mark, to try to save the economy. They're like, we're going to back it up on other things. We're going to say nobody should take the Reichsmark. No you know, business should take that. In fact, very few businesses were anymore. Most people were buying things with cigarettes. That had become the currency of the, of the day. And so the Allies were like, no, no, no. Get rid of the Reichsmark. This will work. This is a solid thing based on gold. We'll, we'll, we're going to rebuild the economy. And it worked. It worked very well. The economy started building back up. But if you remember, I said the whole reason that the USSR did that was because they were trying to destroy the economy, right? So if you're the USSR, are you happy about this? No! The whole point was that you were trying to create a, a control of the situation. So that Stalin blockaded Berlin. He's like, I'll find control a different sort of way. He ordered that all traffic, all freight coming into Berlin from the west should be stopped in return. No foods coming in, no medicines are coming in, nothing like that. And then he blockaded the Allied zones, destroying all the water and electrical lines going to them. How do you do that? How do you justify doing that? I mean, you, you just you just trapped all these people here. Said no food, no water, no electricity, no medications, nothing. How do you justify that? Or maybe back up. How does the rest of the world feel about that? Pretty angry, because clearly you can't do that, right? If you're Stalin, how would you possibly justify that to people? You can do it if you have control. You can do it if you have control, but... They would take control of all Berlin, and he justified it saying, we're going to have our energy and our water for ourselves. Let them do it themselves, yeah. Because the Western world sat there and said, you're starving these people out. And he said, well, no, 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 no. I have no responsibility toward these people. Is there anything in our agreement of occupied zones that says I have to provide them with water, or I have to provide them with electricity? Is there anything that says that I have to provide you access to roads in East Germany to get to Berlin? No. I'm not doing anything to them. I mean, if they starve, they starve, but I didn't starve them. I just didn't provide anything or allow you to provide anything. Technically, on paper, there's nothing wrong with this. Because remember, we, we talked about this a couple of times. With laws, the beauty of it is there's what you say on paper and there's what you meant by it. And so even if things look okay on paper, that doesn't necessarily mean they're an okay law. Here he says, there's nothing that says I have to let you use my roads and there's nothing that says they have to have access to water from me. If they can figure out how to get it themselves, I'm fine with that. People in the Western zones had a little over a month before they would starve. And the whole idea was he's like, let them starve. Or let them leave. I'm fine if they just want to leave, because the this this blockade is only permeable one direction. You can leave West Berlin, knock yourselves out. I don't mind if you do that. If you want to leave and go to West Germany, you can do that. You just can't come in. 
pretty good. He's like, there's no way that they're doing They're not going to fight us on this. They're not going to start a war over this. They just were fighting Germany. If they're not going to actually do anything to support the Koreans, there's no way they're going to do anything to support the Germans. So the United States initiated a massive airlift they called Operation Vittles. Because they're like, all right, we can't use the roads. We'll use the air. There's nothing in the, in the rules that say we can't fly over Berlin. By the way, as we're flying over Berlin, we're dropping stuff. We're going to drop food. We're going to drop medicine. We're even going to drop milk, which is stinking brilliant. I mean, if you think of the technology behind that as to how to figure out how to put glass bottles of milk out of an airplane and have it drop without breaking. Now, the USSR had 50 times as many ground troops. They're like, yeah, we, 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 there's no way you could fight our way through. So they're like, there's no way they're going to fight. But the United States said, yeah, but you're not prepared for an airstrike. And the airstrike, by the way, is we're dropping milk for starving children. I don't think you're going to shoot down our planes. That would be kind of a PR nightmare for you. And as powerful as you are, you still have to think about your PR. You really do. You're trying to win the German people. We're trying to save the German people. Think it through. You're really going to shoot us down? What's interesting is a U.S. pilot named Gail Helborsen that took that a step further. He was visiting Berlin at one point, uh, was making some home movies, and he ran into a bunch of children that were begging for him for food, and he's like, oh, I've got a couple of sticks of gum. I don't have any food. They begged him for it, and he said, tell you what, if you don't fight over the gum, if you don't fight over the gum, if you can just divvy it up, Next time I fly over, I'll drop something special for you guys. They said, how are they going to know if it's you? How are we going to know it's your plane? They said, tell you what, I'll wiggle my wings as I drop stuff. That way you know it's me. There was a video on that uh, a years ago. Was there? Yeah. Okay. Well, I love this story because they call him Uncle Wiggle Wings. <laughs> um, that night, he stayed up late making miniature homemade parachutes with every handkerchief he could find. And then he dropped... It, dangling from each parachute, little individual packets of gum, individual candy bars, individual everything he could think of to get over there, basically cleaned out the base P, you know, PX to get everything he could find, and wiggled his wings as he dropped it over. <laughs> Soon, other pilots were doing that. All these other pilots were like, oh, okay, let's go, and they were hunting down candies, they were hunting down everything. In fact, children from across the United States, when they heard about this, kids from across the United States sent in their candy, saying, how can we, how can we support the, the kids in Berlin? <laughs> And so from all across the country, people were sending stuff, and they were dropping tons of it. In fact, they dropped 23 tons of candy onto Berlin. They called it Operation Little Vittles. <laughs> he got in a little bit of trouble, actually, with his, with his CO, who said, oh, you're breaking regulations, you can't do this. But when the, the head of the Army Air Corps heard about this, he's like, what are you, nuts? <laughs> no, no, yes, we're totally doing this. We're giving it a name. But think about it. What it did was it gave the people of Berlin, it gave those families hope. Because you might think, well, nobody needs chocolate. Well, I need chocolate. Most people don't need chocolate. Most people don't need candy. Except what these families desperately needed was hope. Because all they knew is that they were, they were stuck in the middle of enemy territory, stuck with a, a leader that said, I want you to starve. I want you all to die. And then they saw these allied planes flying over, dropping things. And even their children were excited and smiled on a given day because they knew that stuff was coming for them. So how huge is that? What can we learn about that? I know that this is, this is all politics. All right, fine. What can we learn as a church? Anything? 
some ways it automatically made me think of when we do Operation Christmas Child, but the stuff we stick in the box isn't necessarily to me always a key, but also a want. And if that, in any way, how we're using that is to get you excited about what else is in there, sharing Christ. But sometimes leading something that's fun to, to grab somebody's attention to make them feel like they're human again is a very important aspect. What's interesting is. There's, there's stuff in there that's, that's toiletry items that these kids have never had before, and that's, that's meeting a physical need. There's stuff in there to talk with them about um, how to follow Christ, the importance of following Christ. That's meeting the, the core spiritual need. But then we give them, like, balls and toys and things. And what's really interesting is to hear some of the kids get so excited saying, I've never had a ball before. Never, I've never had a Frisbee. I, don't, I have no idea what this is. I've never had toys like this. People that have never even met me are sending me stuff because they want to show me that Christ loves me. That is huge. Just to say, it's not just I'm handing you a tract and saying, hear about Jesus. I'm saying, you are a human being. Let me treat you like a human being. God loves you individually. Look, you have a different toy than she has. She has a different toy than he has. Each of you is unique. That's powerful. It's huge. That what we can show is not only Christ in terms of our theology, not even only Christ in terms of, well, how do I meet your physical needs, but to stop and say, you matter to a person. is huge. In the end, Berlin was a PR victory for the West and a PR nightmare for the USSR. Because everybody in Germany is like, okay, we kind of love you guys. <laughs> Three years ago, we were all about shooting all of you. We get it now. Hitler was bad. Stalin, arguably, as bad. Truman, good. We like Truman. You know. So an amazing number of people in, in Germany are like, we love you guys. We absolutely adore the Allies. Thank you so much. What do you think about the Soviet Union communists? Really don't like it so much. Not really so much. Stalin felt forced to lift the blockade because he's like, all I'm doing is pushing the people away that I was really kind of trying to bring in. But the East-West divisions kept widening, even so. Germany became a republic. I'd say it like that, because it, it became a republic, but then it kind of split into others. The bi-zone became a tri-zone, and then became the Federal Republic of Germany, with Bonn over here as its capital, which means that the allied sections of Berlin became just the West German section of Berlin. So the Eastern Soviet zone declared itself to be the communist German Democratic Republic, the GDR, with its capital in East Berlin. And then the Polish section just kind of dropped into Poland. They went, well, we'll just, we'll just take this part. <laughs> but even that, Poland at this time was just a Soviet satellite state. In June of 61, GDR first secretary uh, assured the international community, he's like, That's, I understand that there's two different sections here. It's not like anybody's planning to build a wall, okay? So in August of 61, they start building a wall. I love that. Nobody's building a wall. <laughs> Completely cutting West Berlin off from East Germany entirely and patrolled by 11,000 soldiers to make sure that nobody was going over to the West. Interestingly, again, not so much that they were keeping people from the West from going into East Germany. An amazing number of West Germans did not escape over the wall into East Germany. Tended to go the other direction. Technically, though, it wasn't a wall. 
people tend to picture a wall. It's not technically a wall. It was four walls, and there was a lot of barbed wire fences. But it wasn't like one big wall, like the Great Wall of China or something. But even more properly, it was a bunch of courtyards and gaps, like 25-foot gap between two walls. And the gap is filled with pitfalls and stake traps and minefields and things. So it wasn't like, oh, if I could just hop over the wall. You go, yeah, if you could just hop over the, the very tall wall covered in barbed wire and then sprint across 25 feet of, like, punchy stake traps where you fall through and there's spikes sticking up there or minefields or things, and then get over here and climb the other wall covered with barbed wire and get over there without any of the guards, the 11,000 guards on the wall seeing you. Man, you got a chance. <laughs> Good luck with that. And it was surrounded, like I said, with armed guards everywhere, constantly watching everything. In fact, the Church of the Reconciliation, the Berlin landmark since 1894, was, was demolished because it obscured the guards' view of the wall. Besides, the GDR is a bunch of atheists. And so they went, we're not allowing people to go to church anyway. So things have been vacant for decades. All of this is an eyesore. This was kind of an important snapshot of communism to the West. This beautiful landmark of a, of a church that loved the Lord called the Church of Reconciliation gets demolished because the Germans went, we didn't know what to do with it anyway, and all it did was make it harder for us to make sure that we could imprison our people. If you were in the West, for those of you not old enough to actually remember this point in history, if you were in the West, how would you feel about what's going on in the East? How would you feel about communism at that point when you see stuff like that? They're bulldozing churches because they're like, well, I don't know what good these things are, and we can't imprison our people as well with them. Soulless Kind of. You can kind of see why they're a little scared. By the way, 49 is the year that China became a republic. <laughs> right? Because, again, if you divide up, there's no problem. They're divvying things up. North, South Korea, East, West, Germany. It's... If you do that, then there is no strife, right? If you just remove the chafy bit, there isn't a problem anymore, correct? Yeah, same thing, right? Apartheid, didn't we talk about that last time? If you just separate somebody from the chafy bits in their life, then everything's fine. You don't have to change the person. Just make sure that they stop doing this, right? I know we talked about this, so I'm not going to talk about this long, but... It was 49 that, they, that China finally came, fell to the communists, leaving the last remnants of the non-communist regime to settle in exile in Taiwan. Right? So you got China and Taiwan, which means that there's no problems anymore because they've each got their own republic. Well, and everything with that still fine today. It's all great. It's all golden. It's not like <laughs> it's not like a month ago or our president called Taiwan saying, just wanted to, to check. And the entire international community went ballistic because they're like, you're never, one of the things about why we let you live is that you never, ever talk to a foreign power as if you were a sovereign foreign power. So it's not like a month ago this was huge, right? <laughs> so in roughly the span of a year, the whole world saw communism is moving from being a Russian thing to being a Korean, Chinese, German, Eastern European thing. That's a year's growth. And as you watch it, knowing full well that they are consciously trying to rip down all the social structures that you think you find important, well, how's that going to affect you? How's that going to affect the church? How's that going to affect the way you look at things? 
How would you have felt if you were sitting in 1949? How did you feel sitting in 1949 America watching this? It's a little scary. You're going to start thinking about combating the evils of the world, right? We've already talked about fundamentalism and how it's viewed itself as essentially combating the world. And how evangelical came, evangelicalism came in and said, well, let's maybe not think about combating the world as much as presenting Christ to the world. But you can see why relatively quickly, if you care about having a relationship with the Lord, if you care about freedom as you define it, if you care about involving yourself in church and you see, you see communism spreading and you know what they're specifically saying about their relationship with the church, you can see why if you're an evangelical, even though you say, well, we've come out of fundamentalism, we don't do that kind of, no, we combat. No, we're for Jesus, not against the world. For Jesus. You can see why relatively quickly that also becomes and against communism. <laughs> and I say that not just to say, yeah, those people screwed up and they became against communism. You can hopefully see why. They're like, um, somebody needs to be. This is deadly. So NATO is formed. What does NATO stand for? What does NATO stand for? <laughs> themselves from the perceived threat from communism, the free nations of the West in the Northern Hemisphere, because um, the Southern Hemisphere figured it out for themselves, but the Northern Hemisphere came together and signed the North Atlantic Treaty, and in it they pledged to create this North Atlantic Treaty organization where if anybody attacks one of these nations, they see it as an attack on all of the nations. We're all going to come together and help one another, which actually hasn't happened that often. It's, it's only been invoked, but it's only been officially invoked once. Anybody know? In, in all the years that this existed, it's this, this basic clause of if anybody attacks our, your country, we will all come militarily and support you and attack the aggressor. Anybody? After the September 11th attacks. It's the only time in history that, that NATO's, we will all come together militarily. There are lesser clauses there where where it's like, oh, we'll all come and censure people and things, but there's only been one time where we've all actually done that. <laughs> anyway, in response to NATO, the Soviet Union put all the, the communist countries that are under its control and together as the Warsaw Pact countries in 1955. Though there's a fundamental difference between we're all going to get together and we're all going to support one another, NATO, and we're all going to get together and the Soviet Union is in charge of your militaries. Warsaw Pact. <laughs> Slight difference. Now, France kind of thought that's what America was doing in, in NATO, which is why de Gaulle kept pulling out of NATO and then going back in and then pulling out of NATO, going back in. But that's de Gaulle. And <coughs> anyway, um, but my point here is that every step made by one side of this Cold War gets matched and one-upped by the other side of the Cold War. If we do this, well, we'll do that. Well, if you do that, then we'll do this. Well, if you do that, then we'll do this. We'll make A-bombs. We'll make H-bombs. We'll make seven H-bombs. We'll make it. Everything is, how do we one-up one another? Now, you can make an argument, as people have for decades. You'll notice we haven't had a nuclear war. That one-upsmanship has kept us from having a nuclear war. Because if you want to, if Brian decides he thinks he might take me, he could, he could beat me up because, I don't know if you notice this, Brian has mad taekwondo skills. So, I, I, he doesn't usually talk about it, but... I've seen the pictures. <laughs> Remind me sometime to show you his wrestling pictures. Um, <laughs> and 
yes, I have them. Uh, but, uh, man, you should never let me help you move. Uh, but, uh, but if Brian thinks that he can take me, then he might fight me, right? But if Brian says, I got mad taekwondo skills, and I go, I've got a gun. <laughs> he might say, you know, let's chat. Let's talk. We need to work through this. But then if he says, okay, I've got mad taekwondo skills and a bigger gun, I might go, okay, my mistake. I, let me rephrase. The four of us have guns. <laughs> and, and, and he goes, really? Because the 20 guys I have on you have guns. He might sit there and say, oh, this is, this is getting worse and worse. You go, yeah, if there's a conflict, it's going to be worse and worse and worse. But there does come a point where there's this mutually assured destruction that prevents us from ever having that conflict. So, can you understand why one side of the equation sits there and says, well, this is just insanity. It's not mutually assured destruction. It's mutually assured destruction. This is crazy talk. And the other side says, and yet, as a result, ain't nobody getting destructed. You know, there's something to be said for both sides. I'm not taking sides. I'm saying there's a rationale. Think it through. Anyway, well, here, let, me, let me ask this question. What can we learn about this today in the church? If one side does something and the other side says, well, let, let me one-up that, which makes the other side more agitated and more adversarial and one-up it, which makes the church maybe respond more adversarially, which makes the world respond more adversarially, how does that work out? The moment we think that it's our job to fight sinners, we have missed the point. Because the job is to fight for sinners, right? Of whom I am chief. Amazingly, when you think of it as trying to win the people instead of trying to win the fight, perhaps it's not bigger bonds that you need, sociologically speaking. Perhaps it's little vittles that you need, sociologically speaking. Anyway, 1950, Stalin gave North Korea the, the go-ahead to invade South Korea. Because he's like, nobody's going to start a war. They're not going to do it. I, I mean, they might drop candy bars, but they're not going to do anything. But due to the strategic importance of, of, of Japan, we go, actually, uh, now that we're not fighting them, they're kind of important to us. And we got a lot of troops in Japan, and we don't want Japan to become communist. And thanks to the fact that we now have NATO behind us, and thanks to the fact that the United Nations said, yeah, we need to support South Korea, the United States redeployed troops to South Korea. And Stalin went, oh, it's really not what I intended to happen. Technically, the Koreas declared war on one another, but nobody else declared any war. So what we refer to as the Korean War wasn't. It was just an international police action. Apparently, naughty people came from the north and did naughty things in South Korea. But so far as the UN is concerned, so far as the United States is concerned, it's not like there's a war. These are not technically soldiers. They're police officers. Right. right. Oh, I was <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> and from, a, from a strictly political science viewpoint, it was not a war. From the viewpoint of anybody involved, it's a war. My uncle is in the Korean War, and he'll tell you, yeah, it's a war. You know, Clearly, it's a war. In fact, though there was an armistice that was signed in 53, there was never a peace treaty, which means the war is still going on. 
Korean War is 67 years old. No, war isn't going on because there was never a war. Well, it is between North and South Korea. Their war is going on. Our war, no, we left. We're like, oh, we're done in 53. How about you promise not to shoot at one another for a while? Okay, yeah, thank you, we're gone. Problem solved, because we have removed ourselves from the chafey bit. And as long as you remove yourself from the chafey bit, as long as you take that that variable out, everything's fine. Caleb keeps killing people. Every time he gets anything pointy, he kills people. So we don't let Caleb have pencils. <laughs> Problem solved. <laughs> Cliff, take the pencil. Um, does that solve the problem, or does that just mean that the most painful parts of it are not currently things I have to deal with? But it doesn't solve the problem. He's still a murderer looking for pointy things, right? I can't even let him grow his fingernails along. All right. Now, what this did to Korea's spirituality is profound. South Korea ranks 12th in the list of the world's most irreligious countries. Uh, by places like China and Sweden and the United Kingdom and Israel and Japan and Germany and Australia and North Korea. All those are actually more close to the gospel. Because when you think irreligious, people who say, I, I have no heart for religion, I have absolutely no interest in this, I am complete atheist. You think Sweden, right? You think China. Everybody goes, yeah, I totally think China. You think the United Kingdom. I hadn't thought of it. You think France, because France is up there too. Oh, no, I, I had... But 57% of South Korean populace said they're atheists and, or they have absolutely no religious beliefs whatsoever. They don't care. And the only reason that the populace in North Korea come in only a little bit better at 63% is because there's a whole lot of North Koreans who worship their supreme leader. There's an official cult of the supreme leader. By the way, in this picture, these are people. That's a statue of the supreme leader. So, yeah, there's a lot of them like that out there. And yet, South Korea ranks fifth on the list of the world's most sending nations, with over a thousand missionaries being sent out per million church members, which is about three times as many as the United States sends out. Now, the United States may send out more physical missionaries at the end of the day, but per Christian in the United States, South Korea sends out three times as many as we do, and about a third as many as Ireland does. I'm just saying. The world's largest church, Yoido Full Gospel Church, is in South Korea. 480,000 members, a weekly attendance of 200,000 Christians. They have a prayer mountain ministry that regularly attracts more than a million Christians from around the world. At any given time, it usually has 10 to 20,000 people praying on the slopes of the mountain. So help me out here. What does all that suggest? And what can we learn from that? It is one of the world's most irreligious countries. It is one of the world's most religious countries. How does that work? Is it still that way today? Yeah, those are modern statistics. It is currently one of the world's worst countries in terms of number of people who say, I have absolutely no interest in religion whatsoever, and it is currently one of the world's best countries in terms of people who take their religion remarkably seriously. It's probably something like what Jesus 
All right, so the, you, you're saying that it, it might be an example of you're, you're either going to tend to be cold or hot. You're going to be one, one extreme or the other. That Jesus might be... Well, I, I, the problem with... I hear you, but the problem with that the, the particular from, from Revelation is that Jesus is like, I'd actually like you to be here or here. I suppose you could make the argument that he's saying, um, I can make use of it if you're tremendously irreligious, or I can make use of it if you are tremendously religious, but I have no interest in you being... Why, why is this little country that is right next door to North Korea and China and Japan, none of which known to be particularly religious countries, in fact, all of which are in the top ten of irreligious countries on the planet, and you are fifth, or you are twelfth in the most irreligious country on the planet, why is it that that makes your religion that you do have that much stronger? Yeah. Yep. Your whole culture is pressing you to say this doesn't matter. It's not like it's not like um, some of the some of the countries uh, that say we hate you if you're religious and we're going to fight you. It's they're going no, we hate you that you have an opinion on this. It doesn't matter. You have to agree with me that it doesn't matter. I'm not asking you to agree with me about Islam. I'm asking you to agree with me that religion doesn't matter. You need to admit that this is just your thing. And that it doesn't matter what I think. As long as you do that, we can get along. I mean, I'll disagree with you, and I'll think you're kooky for believing in God. But what I'm asking you to do is not believe in my God. What I'm asking you to believe in is that it doesn't matter. I'm sorry, can, can we find an application for that in the United States today? Is there a growing populace that are, I don't know, booing people at town meetings for praying first? By the way, if you don't know what I'm talking about, Google it. Is there a growing influence in our country of saying, not just you need to believe in Islam, or you need to believe in Buddhism, or you need to be Hindu, but to sit there and go, no, you need to believe that what you believe is just your thing, and keep it to yourself. And we as evangelicals go, no! I will fight for our right to vaguely believe. We spent decades going, uh, I was born a Christian, I grew up in a Baptist church. Yeah, no, that's great. I like going to church most Sundays, unless there's a really good football game coming out early. And by fight, I mean I'll talk to my friend at the water cooler and say, that stinks, doesn't it? I totally understand what South Korea is going through. No, you don't. I really don't. Unless you sit there and say, I absolutely want to fight for the right, and not just the right, but for the privilege of being able to stand before people and say, this matters to me. Not because it matters to me, but because it cosmologically, capital T, true, capital M, matters. Which means it matters for you. Which means that I need to tell you that it matters for you. I'm not fighting against you, I'm fighting for you. Unless you have that mentality, you don't understand what's going on in South Korea. Because the whole point of that is, 57% of the country going, no, it doesn't matter. A small percentage of the country, and I forget the actual percentage now, 18, 18% sitting there going, no, it matters hugely.
Speaking of that, same year, Billy Graham preached his first major crusade. He was born in North Carolina. He was, uh, he, 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 he went to school in Wheaton, then pastored First Baptist Church in Western Springs, nearby Wheaton. 1944, fellow pastor Tory Johnson had a local radio station, uh, radio program, but it was getting canceled because they didn't have the funds to keep it going. So Graham's church took it over when he was 27 years old. And both the program and Graham just skyrocketed. Everybody was listening to it. 1947 became the youngest person at age 30 to serve as president of any U.S. college or university when he was hired to be the president of Northwestern Bible College in Minneapolis. He also began touring as a full-time evangelist with Johnson's newly created Youth for Christ. Tori Johnson had gone on to do that in, I think, 46. And so, yeah, he's out there touring as an evangelist full-time. There was a group in Los Angeles called the Christ for Greater Los Angeles Committee that was actually an outgrowth of the Christian Businessmen's Association. And they were doing a series of outreach events over the span of five years. And they had all sorts of different speakers like Charles Templeton, Jack Schuler, and Tory Johnson. <coughs> they wanted to do a really big one in 49, so Tory Johnson said, how about calling Graham as the speaker? I know this guy, he's dynamic, you should do this. Plus, he's been doing seven campaigns over the country over the last two years. Over a thousand prayer groups around Los Angeles prayed for the campaign for months and months before it started. In fact, it was held over eight weeks. It was supposed to be three weeks long. It kept going for eight weeks. The circus tent that held the meeting could seat 9,000 people, and they kept having to turn people away every night because they couldn't seat them. By the end of the campaign, Graham had spoken to more than 350,000 different people in the area, and 3,000 people came forward for Christ. I think that's significant, don't you? Then again, that's 8.5% of the people that were there. He reached 8.5% of the people to have them come forward. And even Graham said in, a, in an interview in 1990 that he's like, I think about a quarter of the people that came forward in my events actually made a legitimate decision for Christ. Maybe a quarter. And statistically, about 6% of the people that make it even a genuine commitment to Christ at an event like that, about 6% of them are still active in a church, active in their faith a year later. 45 people. He reached 350,000 people. 1,000 prayer groups prayed for months. 3,000 people came forward. Big numbers. It's really cool. Statistically, we don't know. There's no way we can know. But statistically, by his own reckoning and by what we do know about how this stuff tends to work, probably about 45 genuine converts a year later are actively involved in their faith. Absolutely. Thank you very much. The next point I was making. I'm not slamming that. Booyah! Praise God for those 45, or let's even pretend, 750 converts. Forget that 6% thing. No, a full quarter became genuine Christians and were actively involved. Praise God. That's awesome. That's great. They wouldn't have existed necessarily without that crusade. I don't begrudge that at all. My point, though, is if you, still be speaking about proven statistics of things, if you were to invest, really invest, in like two to three people over the span of a year, just engage with them, share life with them, share Christ with them, two to three non-Christians, statistically, after a year, odds are at least one of them will be an active Christian by the end of the year. That's what the statistics of outreach bear out. 
So if each of those thousand prayer groups, I'm not even saying the people in them, if each of those people actually did it, if each of those thousand prayer groups had just invested themselves in two or three people over that time, would we have seen a thousand active Christians by the end of the year? And if everyone who was involved then went and did that the next year, and every year, I say this because one is a much bigger number than 3,000. We don't tend to look at it that way. Because we look at a big, splashy thing and we say, wow, that's huge. We want huge. We want to invest a large chunk of things, time, people, etc., and get a large re return back. Because we're smarter than Jesus. Jesus foolishly invested in 12 guys. And I say foolishly because one of those guys didn't even make it real well, did he? So that investment only bore out in 11 of them. And he really invested in three guys. Three years of ministry. How many guys were at the foot of the cross with him? Three years of ministry? Three years of investing in One guy. Because Jesus is nowhere near as smart as we are. Oh wait, there's millions, billions, billions of people who have been Christians over the years. Because one is bigger than 3,000. I can get 3,000 people splashing and flashing in a pan. Or I can invest and get one person truly knowing the Lord. And then each of us invest and get one person truly knowing the Lord. And then those four invest and get 16 people truly knowing the Lord. And 30, I don't know. I'm going to give them, they given you how many, how many people do you just keep getting more and more? Because I'm not saying it's only one. It might be two out of those three. Or maybe you can invest in more than two or three. But the, the argument that I'm making is not that mass evangelism is bad, but sharing your life, investing in another human being, and helping them build it into their initial DNA to share with their lives with others and investing in other human beings, that is so much bigger. It's little vittles. <laughs> These people need food. Why would I even care about dropping a candy bar? Can I tell you how many hundreds of tons of, of rations we dropped? You know what? What matters most to this kid is that first candy bar he dropped. That changed his life. The other one saved his life. That's great. That candy bar changed his life. Studies indicate that 80% of active Protestant churchgoers think it's crucial that they share their faith. 74% said, you know, I feel like I probably could. Which is actually interesting to me. And I, I did a bunch of research on that after I found that statistic. And it's true. Most Christians, and even the ones that go, oh, I wouldn't know how to do that. You, really? How would you do it? Pretty much know how to share what they believe. 74%. Yeah, I feel like I could probably effectively tell people what I believe. 61% say they haven't done a darn thing about it in the past six months. 48% say they've never reached out with their faith. So there was an interesting informal internet survey that a, a pastor did recently to say, why? Why is that? He asked people just to give them his, their, their top couple of reasons as to what they struggle with or why do they think that it's so hard for Christians who consciously believe this is absolutely crucial and yet tend to do nothing. So in order of the most, the, the most things that people have said to, down to some of the lesser ones, he said, in general, we have little sense of urgency to reach the lost. We've got so many other things going on. We don't feel like it's crucial. Don't answer this. But in your own head, how often do you wake up in the morning and say, 
it is absolutely crucial. I'm surrounded by dying people. I need to reach them with the gospel. I spent the whole day today going to bed. I never told anybody about Jesus. What was I doing? We don't tend to think about it like that. And I'm not saying that you're a bad person. I'm just saying it's not the way we tend to think about it. We often have no non-Christian friends or contacts. I know this is one of my big things. I'm like, I just don't have a lot of non-Christians that I actively am spending time, because I'm spending time with a lot of you guys, which is fine. We often focus more on what we're against than on what we're for. Our churches often have an ineffective evangelistic strategy of, we've got something interesting, why don't you move toward us? Instead of, you know what, I think I'm interested in you, let me move toward you. Church members often, even tacitly, think that evangelism is the role of the pastor, paid staff, people who are gifted in evangelism. You know, I don't really know how to, I know other people, I mean, clearly, clearly, Cliff has a gift. I mean, let him do that. Paul has a ministry of, of apologetics. Let him do that. Now I'm going to play football. No, I'll totally support them, though. I'll, I'll give ministry money toward them. Church today is often more about getting my needs met. I mean, I want to help other people, but I came here for me. I've got issues. Churches are a retreat mode from a fallen culture. I don't want to reach out to them. They're rotten. Those people are, they're lost. I don't want to reach out to those. I'm much more comfortable reaching out to found people. Christians fear they might offend others if they reach out. Churches have, an un, have unregenerate members. Churches, I deal with the concept. There are some people sitting in church who have spent church their whole life that are not Christians. Again, it happens. I have boxes sitting in my garage that are not, in fact, cars. And they've been sitting there for months. I don't know what's on. <laughs> we often have too many activities in our lives. We keep ourselves way too busy to actually reach out to the lost. What common element or elements do you see in at most of or all of these? Okay, um, and, and let me clarify. Not necessarily selfishness. It doesn't necessarily mean you know, that we're, we're horrible, selfish people who don't care, but self-centeredness. We tend to start with how we're feeling and then move outward from that. Okay, what else? Anything? We segment our lives into the church part and the non-church part. I mean, we often have too many activities in our lives. So we keep ourselves too busy to actually reach the lost. Why can't our faith be a part of those activities in our lives? You know, yeah. we segment things too much. How many of these things revolve around, I don't have time to do that addition? This additional thing. You're asking me to also do this. All the stuff I've got to do, you actually ask me to also do outreach. I just, I don't naturally have that. If you want me to try to wedge that into my already busy schedule or already intense social life or already, I suppose I couldn't. God never asks, never asks us to wedge evangelism into our already busy lives. Never. He never asks us to add that, ever. He demands that we infuse that into everything. That should already be part of the DNA of everything we do. But he never says, oh yeah, add another rock to the pot. No, 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 no. Every rock should be doing this. Right? Shouldn't it be overflowing in everything you do? It doesn't mean every conversation has to be on uh, Jesus pizza. No, no. 
But it's like there's nothing where you go, how do I how do I insert Jesus into my into my secular life? You go, no. How do I naturally overflow? You guys know that I hate mushrooms. You guys know that I'm Irish. You guys know that I'm a huge Coke fan. You know that I love my kids. You know that I love Wendy. You know that I love movies. How have I artificially, unnaturally wedged that into our conversations? Ha, 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 so that you would learn these things. Or is that just a natural part of interacting? It just, if you spend any time with me, you're going to know that kind of stuff. I like history. Go figure. Really? Did I wedge that in? Did I, did I slip that in there going, oh, uh, yes, I like, I like chicken Florentine. We learn a lot about chicken Florentine from history. When you think about it, really, have you ever thought about history? <laughs> Why do we do that about Jesus? Why do I keep making it so artificial? Now, the huge success of the Los Angeles Crusade propelled Graham into national attention. In fact, part of that was because of William Randolph Hearst. Remember William Randolph Hearst? That picture. I love that picture. He's, he's totally just candidly talking on the phone. That's not staged or nothing. Anyway, William Randolph Hearst, if you, if you remember, this is the guy who amped up the Spanish-American War to sell papers and told his artists, who said, actually, there's nothing going on in Cuba. He said, just stay there. You furnish the pictures. I'll furnish the war. I will make a war. And played it up in his papers. Remember that guy now? Okay. Citizen Kane. Go watch the movie. Because when he heard that somebody famous had become a Christian as a result of this, he, he, he told all of his reporters, Puff Graham. I want, I want sidebars on Graham. I want personal interest things on Graham. This is news. This is big news. So let's make it huge news. And sold a ton of papers off of that. But it, it not only propelled Graham to the national spotlight, evangelicalism got propelled to the national spotlight. Remember, this is still kind of a fledgling group. This is a group that most people haven't really heard about. They're like, so you're a bunch of fundamentalists. Like, no, actually, we're moving away from that. Have you read Carl F.H. Henry? To which everybody says, no. <laughs> no, I haven't. I have no idea what you're talking about. Do you get Time Magazine? <coughs> yes. So, you know who Henry is? No. Do you know who Billy Graham is? Oh, everybody knows who Billy Graham is. So it propels him to national spotlight, and he becomes this, um, this association that, that, that with evangelicalism, and both evangelicalism and Graham become associated with a thriving, living, active, growing faith. That's kind of huge. Which is interesting, because mainline Christianity then says, okay, so evangelicalism equals people who are way too concerned with having some sort of personal relationship with Christ. Remember, we talked about mainline denominations, you know, some of the, the ones that have been around for a long time and were, were beginning to be more about the structure than about the relationship. Again, you'll find extremely strong, growing, healthy Presbyterian churches. Never paint with a broad brush. But in general, mainline denominations, the reason we're calling them mainline denominations is that they were, they were focused more on structure, more on tradition, more on you go to church, you do what you're supposed to do, Stop getting in my face about having some sort of personal relationship with Christ. I, I pay my tithe. I do what I'm supposed to do. I don't know what your problem is. Either way, depending on which side of this you're on, either way, both Graham and evangelicalism are gaining notoriety for saying you need to own your faith. You need to have a relationship with God. It's not enough that you just sit in the church building. Live it. Live this out. Do something with it. Everything that Henry had been writing about 
Billy Graham is preaching about. And it's on such a national level that people are hearing it and having to react to it, one way or the other. And so Billy Graham becomes indelibly imprinted on the American psyche as a modern saint, as an American <laughs> Protestant hero. This is what thriving Christianity is like. I tried to find the most chiseled and granity kind of look of Billy Graham I could find there. Which is interesting, because the next year, the Missionaries of Charity was founded. It's a, it's a group that was founded by Anyeje Ojachu. I'm probably mangling that. But Anyeje, I know I'm getting that one right. Born in an Albanian family living in Macedonia. From a little girl, she knew she wanted to be a missionary. That's what she had a passion for. So when she turned 18, she took her vows with the Sisters of Laredo in Ireland, and everybody says, woo, woo. Um, I took the name Sister Teresa after Teresa Lisieux. Lisieux? How people what know actually French? How do you pronounce that? Lisieux. Okay. Patron saint of missionaries and tuberculosis and AIDS victims and florists and gardeners in France and radio characters. I don't know how you figure out. No, seriously, all those. I don't know how you figure out who's the patron saint of what. Because it's not like Teresa was a missionary. So I don't. Anyway. But moving to Bengal, Teresa then spent the next two decades as a teacher in the Loreto Convent School in Calcutta. Um, but in 46, she felt God's call to actually leave that post and become a free nun, a nun with no specific order, so that she could focus on helping the poor and distressed in the streets of Calcutta. And she abandoned her habit and got a simple white sari with blue trim and said, this is my ministry, this is what I'm going to do. And she was soon joined by other nuns who said, yes, we want to help. How can we help? We have this unofficial sisterhood of a bunch of free nuns wandering around the streets of Calcutta, helping people. She started a new school for the poor, and she herself begged on the streets for food to help support the school. In 1950, Pope Pius XII, remember Pope Pius? The guy who did absolutely nothing about Hitler. Yeah. Pope Pius gave her permission to lead a new congregation in Calcutta with the specific goal of caring for, quote, the hungry, the naked, the homeless, the crippled, the blind, the lepers, all those people who feel unwanted, unloved, uncared for throughout society, people who have become a burden to the society and are shunned by everyone. That's what Teresa said she wanted to do, is to reach out to those people. And Sister Teresa officially became Mother Teresa because she was the leader of a new congregation. She began opening not only schools and orphanages, but also hospices for people that had diseases nobody else wanted to mess with. So in particular, she, they opened up hospices for lepers who were often left on the streets of Calcutta to die. Because why not? There's tons of people, there's too many people for us to feed. Let them die. If they can beg for food, let them beg for food. But they shouldn't be a burden on their families. She said, no, I can't in good conscience, in Christian charity, do nothing and watch these people hurting. She said, a beautiful death is for people who lived like animals to die like angels, loved and wanted. It's important. Unquestioning, unconditional love for absolutely everybody. It finally caught the attention of all sorts of different leaders. People around India, people around Calcutta, people around the world. Her name started becoming synonymous with a living saint. Well, you know, I'm not Mother Teresa, but... Because she's just, all she does, all day, every day, is take care of people that other people don't care about. She becomes a goodwill ambassador of the world. She takes this profound message of love everybody with her. Every, she went to Chernobyl to deal with victims there. She, she went into the Lebanon war between the, uh, the PLO and the Israelis 
to help children. She eventually won a Nobel Peace Prize in 1979, as well as the Presidential Medal of Freedom in 85, and pretty much, as I say, everything, every nice guy prize that every country could come up with to give her, they gave her. Now, in the midst of that, Teresa herself dealt with decades-long periods where she felt utterly spiritually empty. She said, I got nothing. I feel totally disconnected from God. I don't even know if I have a faith in God. I don't know if I believe anything about God. For extended periods of time, she felt she was simply serving people, serving her ministry, not serving God. She's like, I got no relationship with God. And yet, she kept plugging away. She kept doing what she needed to do. She kept being faithful to her call. But could you imagine how hard that would be if you were Mother Teresa? There is nobody on the planet that people look at more as an example of a living, vibrant faith. And every time they say that, you feel what faith? And yet, who on earth, other than maybe one confessor, who can you tell that to? I can't tell that to anybody. I can't even tell that to the people I work with on a daily basis because it would ruin their faith because their faith is based on my faith. Because that's healthy, right? Their faith is based on my faith. I can't tell anybody. So she wrote in her journals about feeling totally alone, fully, totally separate from the Lord. I don't know. What can you learn from that? There's many missionaries that are have felt the same way. Well, and my guess is most of us at one point or another have felt what, was it John Trevor? Was he the guy that talked about the dark night of the soul? We're, we're, there are times where you feel distant. There are times where you feel like you're in a... She would feel like this for decades at a chunk. This isn't just depression. And this isn't just, I'm having a tough time. And though you're right, a lot of missionaries feel this way at one point or another. This is decade, a decade of feeling like I don't even know if there is a God. A couple weeks of feeling positive a decade of feeling separate from God. She's like, I take the Eucharist and it's, I feel like a hypocrite because I don't feel the presence of God in my life at all. But I have to do it because people will look at me. Which means there have been serious criticisms of her work. And if you can't criticize Mother Teresa, congratulations, you've made her into a saint, i.e. somebody who isn't human. Because it's not like Paul says saints are set-aside people for Jesus, i.e. any Christian. Paul calls you a saint, right? So if you ever find yourself, oh, I'm not a saint, I'm like, really? I thought you were a Christian. Are you not? Can we discuss Jesus? If you are a Christian, you are a saint. If you cannot criticize Mother Teresa, you've done something wrong, because she's not God. Now, the fact that she consistently struggled with her faith while encouraging others not to struggle with theirs, some people see that as hypocritical. Personally, I wouldn't see that as hypocritical. I would say that that's her struggling. And maybe even her not understanding how to struggle in community, how to interact with other Christians, how to share that. <coughs> Hypocrite? I, mean, I suppose there's a certain level of hypocrisy, but I don't think that that is an example of hypocrisy as much as that's an example of you are, you are struggling with something privately that should never be struggled with privately. You're going through this alone and something that you should never go through this alone in. But more people have been upset that she was more concerned about helping people feel loved then she wasn't solving the issues that made them feel unloved in the first place. You can't fix everything. This is a woman who got millions and millions of dollars of donations every year toward her ministries, had the ear of every leader on the planet, and did almost nothing to change the conditions creating the problems that she was ministering to. She did very little. 
she didn't provide as many hospitals as she did hospices. She didn't provide economic self-sustenance as much as she provided soup kitchens for people who were hungry. She didn't alleviate the suffering as much as hold people's hands through the suffering, which is itself its own ministry. But I do understand this criticism because she saw suffering as itself an act of worship and thus something to be embraced rather than avoided. She said, pain and suffering have come into your life. And remember, pain, sorrow, suffering are but the kiss of Jesus, a sign that you have come so close to him that he can kiss you. Terrifyingly, remember when I said woot woot about the Irish thing? If you'll remember from way back when we were talking about Irish monks, it has been a key part of Irish Celtic theology that you should be in pain if you're a Christian. My namesake, Kevin, would consciously throw himself into poison sumac, poison oak, naked, and roll around it and cut himself so that he would be in constant pain and thus show his love for Jesus. So there is something to be said for this. In our hospitals, people tended to get only the basic care. There would be people holding their hands and telling them about Jesus and loving them, genuinely loving them. But you go, you know, they, they really could have used a CAT scan. They really could have used other things. And that technology is available, and you didn't get it. At the hospices, the, the, the largest painkiller that they, they would give out was aspirin. Coding was available. They could do it. Morphine, India kind of cracked down on But there was other stuff available. But the whole point was, why would I do that? I'm not trying to alleviate their suffering. I'm trying to help them navigate it. I'm not trying to help them. Well, she herself said, I'm not trying to help them here on earth. I'm trying to love them into the kingdom. And it's a genuine love. But do you understand where people might say, you could have maybe... It would be the equivalent in some ways, in some ways, of Sarah saying, I'm hungry, and me holding her hand and looking at her and go, Jesus loves you, and watching her starve. I genuinely love you. And where everybody else has turned their backs on you, I'm here for you. I do understand. But she's like, that's not my ministry. I wasn't here to do this. It's just that most people in the world think that's what her ministry was. Because she had orphanages, she had hospices, and she went to be with the lepers, and you go, Right, but she herself said, my ministry is not to heal anybody. My ministry is to love them. I do understand why some people are like, hey, could you maybe work on both? Could you, could you do both? But whatever you think, the fact remains, she spent seven decades of her life actively, genuinely loving people that everybody else gave up on. That's kind of huge. That's a ministry in and of itself. And even if I say, oh, you could, from my perspective, comfortably sitting here in Illinois, I would have thought that you could have done something a little bit more in Calcutta. And I kind of did. And yet, I'm not going to judge her as much as to point out maybe there's more that you could have done. I have tremendous respect for her. Tremendous respect for the fact that she showed a world what selfless love looks like. Kind of huge. Today, the Missionaries of Charity is comprised of over 4,500 sisters operating in Nearly 650 missions in 133 countries, consciously, tangibly showing the love of God to people. I respect that. By the way, this is the same year that the Assumption of Mary becomes dogma. You know how Mary didn't die. She was assumed up to heaven like Elijah and Enoch, as the Bible clearly indicates. We'll talk about that next week. But for this week, stop and think about... 
what we've talked about here. Does it help? Does it help to simply remove the chafing bit? Or is the core thing that we're supposed to be doing as ambassadors for Christ changing the hearts and changing the world? Not just not just saying, can I can I can I make you feel like you're you're not struggling quite as much by removing the thing you feel like you're struggling over? Or do I want to work to change the people? Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you. I thank you for all that you've done and are doing in us. I thank you for people like Billy Graham. I thank you for people like Mother Teresa. I thank you for people that have gone before to show us passion for your word, to show us your word in action in loving people. I thank you. Lord, I do understand why we why we burrow into holes and protect ourselves and are scared of a, of a broken world. I do get that. That's a scary world. But I do pray, Lord, help us. Help us to genuinely believe that you are larger and better and stronger than a scary world. And remember that we are empowered as your ambassadors to go out and change it one person at a time. In Jesus' name, amen.